Hello and welcome back to the Behind the Business podcast, my music industry podcast where I talk to an assortment of different people from all walks of life in the music industry. This is episode 24 now and I've decided that I'm at the very least going to get to episode 100 so let's see how we get on there. This week's chat is with a current colleague of mine actually, Steve Barnes. We are currently colleagues at a music university in Bristol. Uh, Steve is an artist himself. He fronts uh, the band Thousand Yard Stare, who released a number of albums back in the 90s uh, and have recently reformed for a EP release and a number of tours all around the country. He's a business owner. He's an artist manager. He's a mentor, marketing expert. He's a little bit of everything and he's got a wealth of knowledge, experience, opinions, you name it. Very, very interesting person to have a chat to. We met up summer, end of summer last year um, in a cafe in Bristol. So apologies for some of the background noise. You have to listen past uh, some of the laughing coming from a few of the other tables. Uh, And we talked about his start in music. We talked about his musings on what it takes to get ahead in the music industry Um, and and everything kind of in between those things, really. He's got some really great insights into how things worked back back in the day and the parallels between what it was like back in the day and the opportunities that there are for young, fresh faced, upcoming artists these days. I'd love to get him back on very, very soon as well to talk about some of the more recent work that he's done, some of the work that he's doing with labels like Domino Records, his experiences with what he's done in other countries, in Europe and also further afield. He's recently uh, done some work out in Sri Lanka, which um, which would be great to, to learn a bit more about. And also the reformation of his band uh, that we really didn't get the opportunity to discuss. So there's plenty more to talk about with Steve, so I'll have to get him back on. But until then, here's my chat with Steve Barnes. What are you listening to? What am I listening to yeah. at the moment? So it's a question that I have asked too few people because okay. they're all music industry people. I want to find out a little bit about what you're listening to. Okay. Um, I'm in quite a strange little space at the moment. I think because I've been doing quite a lot of... Um, I, I, because I've been doing quite a lot of stuff with my old band from back in the day and stuff like that uh, I've, I've been reintroduced to some old friends and stuff like that okay i've been listening back to quite a lot of stuff um, not so much from my promotional days but actually from my band days so i'm talking probably late 80s right so i've, I've been listening to quite a lot of uh, bands like wooden tops and corn dollies bands that most people have never heard of okay. just to reacquaint myself with it because we've ended up having it in conversations and i'm like are you actually any good? In most okay. of the cases, like, yeah. Right. Not. What do you do? You know, I mean, we're in an age now where you can just go on Spotify and listen to that and to, to mm. stuff if it just comes up in conversation. So what do you take away from, from those sorts of sessions? Um, do, you know, do you have a listening session when you it's, go home? It's a complete reminisce, to be honest. It's just it, personal. It brings, the great thing about music is, is that it's a soundtrack to your life, right? That's what it is. And the thing about being a soundtrack to your life is, and the reason why we have, I guess, elements of nostalgia every now and again, although I've never been nostalgic, this is the first period of me ever doing this, of actually yeah. looking backwards. I've always looked forwards and always at new music. Um, is that it clarifies pictures in your mind. It kind of... It makes it puts colour into your memories. Mm-hmm. It fills in gaps. It kind of it, if I can hear the sound, I'm like I'm back. Oh, I remember that time when we did that tour or whatever because yeah, yeah, yeah. that was the soundtrack of that time. Um, so, but uh, new music-wise, new new band-wise, 
haven't heard a lot recently that I've really gone, wow, that's incredible. Um, I really like Boyazuga at the moment, uh, but I'm doing a bit of work on them. So it's stuff I'm generally working on. <laughs> uh, shame. Does, does, that, does the stuff that you reminisce with, does that ever kind of inform what you try and see, what you're trying to hear in the newer stuff? You kind of go, oh, I wonder if there's any acts out there at the moment that can I don't create the same vibe. I don't think consciously, stuff. but I, no. I guess possibly subconsciously there is a little bit of that. I would say that um, although I have quite a wide taste in music, you know, I'll spend a morning listening to Billie Holiday and Etta James because I've always loved that kind of music, mm -hmm. and I'll listen to Studio One and Trojan during the afternoon. But if it's about I wouldn't call that passive listening, but if that's that's my in the general ambience, they're the things that make me feel really nice. But if I'm actually thinking, oh, I want to listen to some music and be a bit more active, I guess I, like anyone would, you naturally seek things which have some kind of semblance to something from the past mm -hmm. in some shape or form. But I'm always looking for it being done in a fresh way. And when I say a fresh way, it's not necessarily a sound, it's more an attitude. Okay. So, for example, if you just take general guitar music, in indie rock, for example, which obviously I've been in that field for quite a long time, yep. even though it's not all I listen to. Um, when I hear a band like Boyzuga or Shame, or obviously I've been Idols and stuff like that, then uh, I'm hearing things that I've always been familiar with, but done with a new passion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think particularly in that, the problem, the general problem with rock, indie rock in general, is that the very nature of it means that it doesn't change much sonically through the ages, but the, the story that's being told may, the attitude that's being put behind it may, may change yep so even though I guess a lot of these bands sound very similar to bands I've always liked it's done with a different perspective it's done with the perspective of a young person now or a youngish person now mm -hmm. so the topics they're talking about um, but just the general attitude of the music gets me quite excited again energy and is that what gets you wanting to work with yeah acts as well definitely I think that if I look at things from a point of view of why if it, if it, if the, you know, if it, sort of paraphrase your question, if it's a case of what makes you want to work on something, it's if you hear something and it gets you excited, you think, you know what? I think this could excite others. And if it's if it's if it's promoted the right way of people with the right message, perhaps they could go, shit, I feel that too. You've, you know, you've you've focused quite heavily on attitude. Yeah. There. Do you think that you can kind of, I guess, you can coach or teach or help someone develop their sound or the quality of their music but you don't really think you can do that with attitude or a feeling is that something would, would you agree with that as a yes and no I would say you can definitely help someone focus better mm -hmm. but you can't make it exist so it needs to exist in the first place yeah, yeah, yeah. there needs to be some kind of focus either a raw anger uh, an ability to all right let, let's do some examples songs that I've talked about so why is Billie Holiday still to me the greatest singer of all time because the attitude that, it's, that, that she sings it with has never been better for that kind of sad music in my you know that, 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 that you can feel the, you can feel the pain uh -huh. through the music that she you know but then if you go to something current now like Idols for, for example which a lot of people see as punk and, and very angry music. I'm quite used to loud, fronted up music. To me, it's actually quite beautiful music. I okay. think it's beautifully phrased. I think it's controlled and I think it's focused. And you have to have that mm -hmm. in you. It has to actually exist in you. But then you have to channel it. And that bit can be taught, is that the right word? Can be encouraged. I think encouraged, or I, I was going to go with develop. Yeah. You know, you can see something, yeah. but you can kind of, you, go, you can yeah. coach it. Yeah. Whether or not you can coach yeah. an attitude is something that I'm a little bit fuzzy I don't on. Think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think you can, you know, to use it an kind analogy. It kind of feels a bit insincere if you teach someone yeah. how to be, have the You right can't attitude. say be more angry about it. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It's, is there a different way you can channel that? Mm -hmm. for example. Okay. So I'll use Idols Game as a great example. When they first started out, they were just a very angry band. 
Um, and there are lots of those. And it's a fairly atypical of young bands. They have plenty to be angry about, in my opinion. I think we've, as a ge my generation, I'm a bit older, yep. uh, I think we've been complete shits to the uh, generations below us. And I think that we've demonised young people far too much. But that's a, another soapbox I like to get on. That's and a different so I, podcast. It is. So I think that when I, when this, I think music is incredibly emotive. I think it's still the most emotive art form. I think mm -hmm. it can change things more than any other art form, personally. Um, so when you see someone who develops either through their own, through a mixture of their own development as a person and the influence around them, and focus that into something which is actually a positive anger, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's exactly how it, in my opinion, that's what I think that is amazing. And managed to, to do that. So whether that's Billy Holiday or it's Idols, for me it's actually the same yeah. thing. It's it's focused, positive, forward-facing anger. Okay. You know, Strange Fruit and Mother by Idols are essentially completely different from completely different backgrounds. Black female, back in the day, white male, different country right now. Mm -hmm. But actually, the feeling that they get across is is the message they get across is is for me. Okay. Just as strong. Thousand yard stare. Uh, yeah. How did all that start? Well, back in back in yeah. the other. I don't think you've okay. ever told me. Okay. Um, I'll go back a little bit before it started to contextualise it. A little yeah. Bit. Um, I was a. I was essentially an only child. I have a sister, but she left home when she was 15, so I was four. So essentially, I grew up as an only child. And I think that when you're in that situation, and the schools I always went to were never my local school. So I was a kind of a mixture between someone who could be in every man, I could fit in with any group, the hard boys, the sport kids. So I became a bit of an everyman. Right. But at the same time, a bit of a loner as well, because you kind of learn to work by yourself. And my mum was a very imaginative person um, poetry was very big in our house reading all that kind of stuff so I kind of I guess I was a bit of a dreamer I always had that element about me so I think very early on I thought I want to be a writer that's what I want to do I want to write I mean it's a normal thing for a lot of people to mm -hmm. come up with you know airline pilot writer all those kind of things um, and the reason I say that is because I was at a school that I hated I mean I hated it and I had to go back to sixth form. And I suppose that's that age where you, you don't feel a complete, you're a complete person. I didn't really know where I fitted in with anything really. I fitted in everywhere and nowhere. I think that's the best way I could describe it. Yep. And I got, I've been forced to go back to sixth form. I lasted half a day and I just walked out and I'm never going back. And there was a college, Windsor College, um, where a lot of the hip kids that I'd started to sort of think were quite cool were all going to. And I walked there took about an hour and 20 minutes, just walked straight there and sat outside the deputy head's office, who was brilliantly called Mr. Bowie, 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 whichever one No relations. Um, but I really liked that. Um, and basically, finally got to see him and pleaded to just join the college. So it's already started, you're too late, I said, I'll take any course. So my first courses were English literature, because they could fit me in, that was quite easy. Sociology, I didn't know what that was, and pottery. Nice. So that's what I started at college. Um, Do you have your own kiln? I, I, I think <laughs> I potted once and then that was it. Um, and then, but what it did was within a week, my life completely changed. I was with people that I could relate to, um, got treated by an ad, like an adult by the teachers. Um, and within six months, I was social sec. And no first years were ever social sec. Mm -hmm. Within a year, I was running two indie nights in town social second for college and then started a band and I started a band with friends and the reason I started a band was all my other friends who I now had were all in bands so I started a band too um, and I wanted to be part of that scene so that's how it kind of started and the only people that I knew <coughs> were people I'd gone to school with previously and the drummer happened to have a basement with a drum kit so we just started making noises and, and trying to make it happen. Yeah. I was a really foppy indie kid by, by this point, and our guitarist was into Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden and right. stuff like that, um, which obviously was a bit of a clash at the time, but actually I think quite often those things can create 
middle grounds. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't meant to be a singer. I was a guitarist and I wanted to write the songs, I wanted to write the lyrics because obviously I wanted to be a writer. But wanted Sean, um, then turned out to be our bass player, to be our singer. He was the gregarious one. Right. So it was the obvious default position. Problem was, no one else listened to lyrics in songs. So when we were trying to do cover versions, no one knew any of the words, which drove me mad. So what we'd do is we'd do cover versions of songs or bands that we liked at the time, like yeah. the Wonder Stuff and stuff like that. And I would have to sing along so everyone knew where we were in the song. Right. And this eventually just turned into, well, why don't I just fucking sing them? Okay. So that's what, how it happened. So I played guitar and I sang, and I hated doing the two things. I just really disliked it. It's a really, it's an interesting one, that, because I always, I never liked it either. I always wanted to be frontman, rhythm guitar player, and vocalist yeah. as well. But I could never do it. I always found it too difficult and got really frustrated. I think I was very clearly, I wasn't really very good at either of these things. <laughs> so it was almost like, well, I will remain not very good at both of these things, or if I concentrate on one, I might get okay at one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and the need was someone to sing. So that's kind of how it, it kind of happened. So the first few gigs did, I played guitar, and I wrote a lot of the stuff on the first songs and stuff like that. But then I just went, and we got another guitarist in. And that's kind of how we started the band. And we did what any band would do at this point. And I should, I should put this into a time frame, I guess. So we're talking probably late 89, early 1990. So it's a, it's a long time ago now. Back in the day. But we were very fortunate, and I was, I've always been quite, I had no problem whatsoever just going and asking for stuff. Can we get a gig here? Can we do that? I just rock up and ask. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I had a plan, and my plan was I wanted to support a band that I loved at the Old Trout in Windsor, which was where we, and we were very fortunate that I was doing club nights there, and I was working on the band nights anyway, and it was really on the circuit at the time. Right. And the reason why all the new hot bands were playing there <coughs> It was quite simple. The enemy melody maker sounds, the big magazines at the time, they had to review bands and they were reviewing bands always in London. And they were getting quite a lot of stick for like, why don't you review in the regions? And obviously magazines being magazines the way they are, they went, right, where's the nearest place that we can possibly go? And you can get a train from, from Paddington to Slough in 35 minutes and it's 10 minutes on the train to Windsor. And there's the old trout. So all the hot new bands, one by one, would play at the old trout as part of their toilet circuit tour, mm -hmm. and it would nearly always get reviewed. I spotted this quite early on, and I was quite astute to these kind of things very early. So I just pushed to get all the right support. So we end up supporting Pixies, uh, Teenage Fan Club, Carter USM, um, Spiral Carpets. They were all the, these were big bands at the time. Yeah. So very quickly we were playing sold out when I say sold out we're talking 300 but what it did was it very quickly elevated us on the local scene because a lot of people who would no, not really go and see local bands had seen us play yeah. and actually we were quite energetic and we made a real point of being very different the antithesis to the other uh, bands of the, uh, of the of the Thames Valley scene that we were kind of very soon after so I, I love the team. idea of the Thames Valley scene I know it was crazy <laughs> Um, we were all very shoegaze and we were kind of more influenced by Buffalo Tom and Wonder Stuff and just more energetic stuff really and we were very energetic on stage so I think we sort of stood out a little bit we were a bit different to the others so whenever a half energetic band or a rock band we were always like get those guys in because they'll get the crowd going so we became this great sort of support so were you when you started recording stuff mm. and putting stuff out, was that very much uh, for the time? It was, were you doing that in a very DIY Incredibly DIY. fashion? I, I started by the conversation saying, we're going to start a label. Okay. That was my first thing. So and you were doing everything as a by vehicle, As a vehicle. And my plan to was to see if we could actually press a record on our own label and get Revolution Records in Windsor to stock it. It was really that simple. Mm -hmm. And I might run up to London and see if I could get one shot there to take right. it as well. So when did the major come along well okay a very simple way is we pressed our first single um, which was an EP and um, at one of the gig nights that we were working at I noticed that the drummer of the Wonder Stuff had turned up and we didn't know that even uh, and they were notoriously known for being a bit bolshy and a bit arsy and I thought right and I happened to have some in my bag so I grabbed one and at the end of the gig I went up and I went Martin, Martin I know who you are would you take copy of the single and he said no <laughs> and I was really quite shocked so I was a bit like but I'd seen the car he'd come in he'd come with this, this this girl his girlfriend at the time 
So I went and sat on the bonnet of the car. <laughs> I waited to come out, and he said something explicit to me, and I just went. I just went to her. And he said no. Anyway, the girls were with a girl called Penny. He said I'll take it. So she took it, took the record, and that was that. I had my mum's phone number on the back, obviously. Um, anyway, I came home from work one day. And I said, some girl called Penny's rung up about your record. So I rang her back and she said, oh, you said the story. And I went, oh, okay. She said, I really love it, so is mine. I went, okay, well, it's really nice. I don't really know what this means. She said, well, I run Press Council. And Press Council were a hot press company at the time. They were doing all the right bands. Right. So we'd like to do some promo, if that's cool. And I'm like, yeah. So it was kind of making your own first break and a bit of luck. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so very quickly, the enemy got very, very involved as they did in those days it was the very build them up very fast yeah i think we still have the record for the longest time ever of a song in the turn on the section 15 consecutive weeks okay um, that year we got number one in the enemy singles chart um, so this is what really kicked off then the majors come a knocking <laughs> think there is a, a 2018 equivalent for a, a band that that you went through back in the early 90s I do you th think someone like an idols have has done the kind of equivalent of what you guys did I back do then? I do and I think the opportunities now are potentially greater than they were then mm -hmm. to contextualize this the way that I always look at it is that up until let's just call it the digital meltdown of the industry yeah. prior to that it was quite a simple landscape. There was a wall, and on one side you had creators, on the other side you had exploiters. So that's the industry on one side, and creators on the other side, the bands. And your sole focus was to find a way over that wall. And the way yeah. over that wall, the ladder, was a, was a record deal. Not exclusively, but generally that was the way. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you were focusing everything on trying to get signed. And the reason you want to get signed is if you can get over that wall, instead of being up against 160 other bands including 20 in your own town you're suddenly now only up against five or six bands being promoted at a particular level so your opportunities are greater it gives you distribution it was all physical and if you can get distributed into stores there's a good chance people are going to write about you there's a good chance people are going to play on the radio if you're not being distributed into stores it's almost impossible so the whole thing came as a bundle. Yeah. The downside to that was you had to sign a really bad thing called a record deal, <laughs> which are dreadful. They I are. Won't, I, you, I'm sure you cover that many times already. Yeah. So that was the that was the pro quo. So it was kind of a choice you had to make, um, and that was really the only part. So I guess what I'm saying is, in the old days, is it was quite straight up. That's the focus. There's one way over the wall. Now I would say the same situation kind of applies, but there's no wall. Okay. Right. So it's now a case of how do you go over the border? In fact, the border has mixed completely between the two sides. Mm -hmm. But the opportunities to do things DIY, say, not just on a local scale, but national and international scale, is so much greater. And yeah. if you look at anything from like Idols, Death Grips, or Shabazz Palaces, any of these kind of acts, would never have got out of their town, but are known all over the world mm -hmm. because of the meritocracy of the internet age, the, the digital age. The downside, because there has to be one, is that there is a lot of sludge, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of sound, and also, more importantly, people who are music fans are much more passive now, not because they're idiots, but because they have an awful lot of other entertainment opportunities. Well, also, directly it's just, it's, it's a, a form of entertainment that is, for want of a better word, constantly there. Always. It's not like, oh, hang on, all the new releases have come out today, I'm going to my local yeah. store, be that an independent or, a, or an HMV or anything like that. It's kind of, it becomes passive because there's just, there's so much just on the, your this, phone. This rounds perfectly around to what we talk about at the start, about attitude. See, it's like, what can make the, the question I get asked is, well, how do we make a difference? And I say, you are the difference as a band or an artist. You are the difference. Mm -hmm. It's not about you inventing a sound that's never been made before. It's not about you singing a language that's never been done before. It's about how believable you are in what you're doing. And does everything add up? Because mm -hmm. if, I, if, I, if you're asking me to stick my head in your world, does it make sense? Does it all add up? And if it does, and I like it, I might stay. And if I stay, I might stay longer, and I might return and return and return, and that's how you build a family. Mm -hmm. okay? But it, so you have to have a connection, not just with the sound you're making, but the whole world that you're building. 
and more often than not you will have to have built this world in some shape or form before any stakeholders would generally want to get interested in the first place. This has two benefits because the first benefit is it means that you're in a stronger negotiation position because you possibly have something that already has a value of mm -hmm. some kind. It's a notional value perhaps, but yep. it has it. And secondly, if you started to build it in the, in the image that you want, it's very unlikely that stakeholders will try and break that apart and create something new out of it, which is a problem of unformed bands. Problem we had when we went to a major label is they were trying to make you into something that you really weren't. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's covert, it's, it's, it's just happening in the background. It's kind of like, why are we on this TV show? It doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. We're not this kind of band, yeah, yeah. it's exposure because their job is selling records. And, it, and in those days, any audience was an audience. It's about massive audiences. Right? About the audience, not who the audience specifically is. Exactly, it's like, if we spray it an around enough, we'll find an audience. That was the way all promo was done. Now it's a complete flip. It's yeah. like, who are our audience? Where are they? How do we talk to them? For want of a better word, the business person yeah. in the band. Yeah. And was 100%. that because you wanted to be? Or yeah, was it I because did. No, I did want to be. Yeah. I absolutely. I was. I, I think I saw it in a slightly different way to everyone else in the band. That's no disparaging towards them. You, you need different kinds of people in different. Mm -hmm. But my kind of, I guess my heroes, if you like. I say heroes, not just as the way that they went about their business. Were people like I don't know Michael Stipe example another singer who doesn't have play any instruments um, Tim Booth from James these kind of people who I just thought this is your vehicle isn't it and you're bringing your best mates along with you not in the fact that you're more important mm -hmm. but it's kind of like I can see it all through you yeah I see this I understand this um, it's a you are a personification of mm -hmm. what you're building um, and also just when you're very young you're still you're still uh, developing and you haven't quite worked everything out, you know? Uh, and actually making mistakes is very, very unforgiving, particularly, I think, back then, compared to maybe now, where I think because you have much more of a closeness with your audience, making mistakes is not necessarily the end of your career. Yeah. So, for example, situations like bands like, you know, Cabbage have had or whatever with this sexism, rousing, all this kind of thing. I think because it's because that something like that would have been echoed through just three or four uh, uh, pipes, if you like. So certain music press, certain radio, and a few other areas. There's no opportunity to kind of actually go. Can I explain it to my audience, please? Whereas you can now. Mm -hmm. So I think you can you can ride out. I mean that's a mistake, I guess, or, or, or misunderstanding. But you, you're allowed to kind of fail, but you're allowed to tinker in mm -hmm. plain sight now and I think fans like that yeah so, so your involvement as on the business side of things mm. back when you were in the band did that inform the fact that you stayed in the music industry uh, afterwards did, every, did anybody else in the band no. stay and they all just went right they we did that thank you very much yeah. that was fun yeah we're I think they all tried the other bands and stuff but they only saw it from that linear point of view um, so were you also from that moment when, when you knew that, the, that your band was done, were you only ever going to go, I'm now just, I'm, I have to work with other bands, I have to work with music in some way, shape or oh, form? Oh, I thought I'd always work in music, but I think initially was, oh, I, I want to continue making music myself. And I did okay. actually start a couple of bands and we did some stuff and put a couple of singles out and stuff. But I was, I was always massively intrigued by the dark side, as anyone who's an artist would ever see. <laughs> and obviously, because of the kind of way I was, I made a point of getting to know everyone at Polydor, even the guy who was putting the singles in packets to send out to, distribu to, to distribution people. Do you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, just say hello to everybody, you know? Um, so I ended up working for my old radio plugger, who had started a whole new business, um, sort of expanding on his radio plugging business into other areas of promotion. And at the time, it was just the start of that Britpop kind of kaboom, and we were right in the middle of Camden. Mm -hmm. So all our first clients, um, and I was doing kind of, the uh, best, best way to describe it really is kind of street level promotion. So sending records out to DJs to get played at everywhere from student unions to big club nights, right through to um, like launch events and stuff like that, mm -hmm. guerrilla tactics stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah. Stuff that major labels or big, uh, 
big independents generally weren't that either great at or just didn't have the capacity for within their own staff. So mm -hmm. you were kind of brought in as kind of support marketing. It's like, and we specialise in these specialised areas, lots and lots of different specialised areas. So they'll get you in and go, how do you think you can help us campaign? So I think we should do this, 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 this. Well, so that was, I mean, that's quite early on after. That was within about a year. You started. So would that, would, was that when you kind of knew this is where I'm specialising? This is where I'm kind of my talents lie? In the kind of the marketing I don't know promo if I consciously area. thought that at the time, but I was certainly, I certainly gone, I don't really want to, at that point I was like, I, I just don't want to make music. It was quite raw what happened at the end of the band, for me anyway, yeah. so actually it was a good, it was a good, um, good way to just not deal mm -hmm. with that. Really. So how long after was, was your own stuff, when did you set up your own stuff, Upshot Management? Uh, so it started off as Upshot Promotions, probably about, about eight or nine years. Eight, right. About eight years, I think it was. And that was all, so those eight years were you working yeah, for work, other people, you know, yeah. doing the whole employee, I mean, we were, employee there was. It started, there were four of us when I started, and there were about 20 when, when, when it kind of finished. Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, the problem with promotional companies like that is that they become quite staff heavy. Well, in those days, they were staff heavy before the digital age. Um, so the costs were quite high mm -hmm. to run them. And you were dependent on being able to get the work in every month. So you only had you know, two bad months. When I say two bad months, only working 15 campaigns. And you're already in trouble. So it started to have a few issues. Mm -hmm. um, I decided I wanted to go on. So I went on with one of the other guys there. And we started up shop. Just specialising in areas that we liked, really. Uh, and this is when we started to dabble a bit more into management and stuff. And I think I didn't have a conscious idea to get into management. But I think it's because I just had quite... I'd done so many different things mm -hmm. by this point. I mean, during this period, I was doing documentaries for radio. Okay. Um, I was part Producing? Of, no, we were, I was working with, another, with a friend of mine. Uh, no, there were, there were music documentaries. So we did one on Billy Holiday, funny right. enough. Um, did one on Stereophonics, a few others, which were made for Radio 2 or Radio 1 um, through Document Productions, which was my friend Ran, who used to be the producer on the evening session. Right. Um, there's a whole set of stories on that one, which we'll say for another time. <laughs> um, so I was putting myself about quite a bit. I was, I did a little bit on XFM for a while. You know, I was doing, I was just constantly doing stuff, mm -hmm. basically. Um, which you can when you have no other responsibility at that stage of my life other than to myself. So, and it was a great time. It was a very alive time. There was quite a lot of money in the industry and the associated industries. So, we could have quite a lot of fun. Um, so it kind of, I guess, it was quite natural because I am a bit of a dad about things and always have had that thing. That manage, manage, management head, I guess, right back from the start of the band. Even though we had management, I was kind of managing it um, to fall into an opportunity with management. So my first experience of this was actually during those Britpop years, and um, to show you, it's a good example of how crazy it really was. Because everyone, if you weren't, didn't live through it, or everyone hears the stories, I was, um, I was always first in at work. Not, it's not like a badge of honour. It's just I'm always, I'm an early bird. So I was yeah. always up. When I say first in, I'd be in at half nine. You know, not like half yeah, seven. Yeah. No one else would probably turn up till half ten, eleven at best. But most of, most of us were out till three, four in the morning anyway. Mm -hmm. So you know, it wasn't a big deal. And we, we rented our offices off uh, Food Records, who so you had like Blur, yeah. Octopus, all those other bands. Um, and quite often you'd get a knock on the door and... You Food Records back, got a tape for you. You know, and there'd be this kind of slew of like, you know, Britpop looking bands from the, from the counties coming in to try and sell their wares. And I'd always take the tapes in and I'd, I'd go, yeah, I'll give it to them when they come in. I'd just, you know, I'd take it out And I would, because I used to be in a band and I'd know what it takes to have the guts to come and knock on a door. So, yep. I'd always do it. Sometimes I'd listen to them. Most of the time I wouldn't. But it's taking a day. I really like these two lads. They're a bit, bit rude, a bit wee from Kent. A bit like, got a little bit about them. And I'm like, there we go. They were called West Pier. I'm thinking, could you make a more Britpop name than that? Well done. <laughs> I stuck it on the tape player, because it was tapes. And started listening to it, making some coffee. Sounded like just a normal Britpop band. It's all right. First song. The phone rang. Really unusual at that time of day, by the way. Anyway, it rang. <laughs> and I was on the phone. And I was on the it was, so the tape just kept going. So it got to track three, I put the phone down, and I was making a coffee, and I was like, what the fuck is this? What is this? And I love this band. Uh, I always loved kind of post-punk stuff, and there was a band called Magazine, mm -hmm. um, who were uh, one of my favorite bands. And this song sounded like Magazine. So much so, that I actually rang one of those guys up, and said, what, what magazine cover are you covered here? 
and he went who a magazine and I'm like oh you did this unconsciously mm-hmm. and I really loved this track and I thought it was just incredible and anyway so I started helping out a little bit and because all the other people in the office like who is this band I said okay well I'll put them on and it's what became the bar fly and it's now the monarch again yeah those days it was the monarch but you played downstairs on the floor next to the bar mm-hmm. I said well we'll put them on at seven o'clock we knew them in there we were in there all the time so I just asked the landlord so can we stick a band on for half an hour I just wanted the guys to see it that was it so they came in they're playing, playing the gig and a friend of mine who was an A&R guy called Ben Wardle who'd been in A&R for quite a long time and he was he, he was at RCA but he was running Indolent Records and Indolent were hot at the time they had Sleeper 60 Foot Dolls Wanna Dies they were mm-hmm. having hits as an indie a major indie label yeah, yeah, yeah. if you were a Britpop you'd want to sign to this it was one of the labels you'd want to sign to like Food, Creation, Indolent those mm-hmm. are the kind of labels you wanted to be on he literally is coming around the corner, waving through the window. So, standing by the bar. I had no intention of going, oh, check out this band. We're just sit, standing by the bar, got a drink, and they play this song. It's the last one that they do. And he went, wow, that sounds like a magazine. I said, that's what I said. And he loved magazine. He was a real into all that kind of thing. And he finished his drink, and he met her, and he went, can I sign them? And they signed to RCA two weeks later. Wow. I mean, so talk about thrown into the deep end. I was still only 20, 22 something like that, 23 maybe, 22, 23, somewhere around there. I didn't know what I was doing. They were now essentially on a major. Yeah. Um, I mean, RCA were yeah. a different kettle of fish back then to what they are now. Uh, quite. But still. Quite. Um, and obviously we worked on all those bands anyway, so it was part of the family, it felt like part of the family, but perfect. I mean, it's like you would, if you were going to write it down, mm-hmm. that this would be the path that you would write written down. Um, too early for me, too early for the band. And it imploded. They're all living in my house. They started fighting amongst each other, and it all imploded. They put one single out, did a big tour with the Wanna Dies, played a few other shows, um, did a radio one session, and that was it. And it all imploded. So that was my first experience. Does 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 an experience like that inform decisions that you've made subsequently in the management? At the time, it because we've me. spoken a few times about some of the artists that you've taken on board that you've worked with over the years you're looking at working with new ones now and all that sort of stuff so are you very much uh, really thinking strategically about how this works rather than because it's not yeah. the well, early well, 2000s man- management is or is the is late I think 90s management anymore. in general is very different now to how it was there's a, there's a whole different set of skills you need to have as, a, as management but mm-hmm. to answer your question yeah I think the one thing that I realised very quickly is, is you need to know how to develop an artist as a manager, you can't leave this to other people, and you can't leave it necessarily always to the band. Now, you might get lucky, and you have a band who can develop themselves. Uh, so, what if they can't? You, you need to be able to do that development for you purposefully, mentally as well as. Uh, what does that development look like? Well, it will depend on the artist in every case. But always but a slightly different. Using one example, what has okay. developed? The one thing that I would say is like. always the same: is an awareness of what you're trying to create which sounds like such a simple kind of almost weak thing to say mm-hmm. but it is incredible how many people myself included as an artist you just make something and go I don't know what that was all about but there it is okay you need to know what it's all about mm-hmm. right? you need to realize that you're starting a story and you're asking people to come with you and if you don't get that you're going to struggle because your messages will be mixed you'll be all over the place it's mm-hmm. like writing a book and not doing it in, a, in, in chapter order it's madness yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, okay, you haven't written all your chapters yet. They're going to be done in the future, but there's a kind of way that you will open that out. Mm-hmm. So actually, I would say it's a development of the person, of the people, making them understand what is required of them to, to have the privilege of being an artist. How does that go down in your experience? Um, I mean, I guess it all starts with trying to build confidence in an artist but an honest confidence, and I think this is really important because what I found is you tend to find two, underconfident or overconfident, and what you try to do is find a really nice middle ground, and usually mm-hmm. the, the, the ingredient that changes that is honesty. So someone who's underconfident, if you can get them to really look at themselves, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the metaphorical mirror, and, yeah. really, and actually you can pick on all the things right, you know, like you would with anybody, you know, a friend, where you try to sort of pick them up a little bit, and like, but you're really good at this, and oh, am I? Yeah, and let me explain why you're good at it, and they yeah. go, oh, all right then. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow, it's not like you turn up one day and put a slab of confidence in, it's a, it's a slow burn, and you yeah, build it. Some of this and the same with someone who's overconfident, you need to be able to, you know, let's, 
not to be too far from it, bringing down a peg or two mm-hmm. without literally unpegging them off the washing line and watching them form. So you have to kind of yeah. develop skills, which is why I'm saying this is what I think underpins all management on every level, is the ability to develop the individual, or the individual, or the collective if it's a band. But again, individuals within the collective, mm-hmm. for the good of the collective. <laughs> Do you prefer to work with a certain type of creator, I guess? Do you like working with, for instance, individuals versus bands? Do you find them easier to work with? I don't think there's any doubt that working with individuals with duos is easier for the simple reason that there are so... Look, it's the less voices. Bands are incredibly precarious. In a lot of ways, they're quite a dinosaur thing these days. They're kind of hard to move around the country. (laughs) But more importantly, particularly development, particularly when they're young, it's generally not the music part that is the problem. It's usually things in the outside world. You know, the bass player spits up with his long-term girlfriend and you just can't get anything out of the guy for six months. I can't allow, you know, I can't, I, I have to sympathise with that situation, uh, and I have to understand it. But you know, and people change, and, and particularly the you know early ages of like it happens to be the time when most people are most creative between sort of seventeen and twenty four. Mm-hmm. But it's also the time of most uh, most tumultuous time in general life. They're still mm-hmm. settling into who they are, what they want to be, etc. So that's the hardest part. So obviously, the more parts, more moving parts in the machine, the more things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you've got, if you can focus all of your efforts into one particular creative output, or one or two people who are the, who are the, the creators, um, as we've seen probably with even a lot of bands, with, if, if we see interviews with a lot of managers, they've always focused on the money makers, if you like, who's writing the songs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the rest of them can whatever, even though it's a collective. <laughs> but that's, that's just management. That's, yeah. that's you managing what you need to manage. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that I would never manage a band. Um, but I definitely have enjoyed managing. I've enjoyed managing individuals better because I think you can have a much closer relationship with them. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see things from one perspective rather than four. But for, from a fun point of view, as far as when things are really going for fun, you, it's more intense that way. If it's if you've got things really bouncing and everything's really good, having a collective, having a gang's quite good fun. Yeah, but yeah, you have totally. to be very very lucky if you've got a lot everyone in tune for the most part of the time. Think in a band. Yeah, I think that's that's the hardest part. For you personally, mm. what's exciting you the most about the music industry? So, from someone who's working with bands, mm-hmm. not necessarily asking which artists have excited you the most, but. Yeah, just what opportunities are out there at the moment that are blossoming, that are thinking that are kind of really... I think we are in a new spring, I, gen- I genuinely do. I think there was the, the you know, we've, we've had the mel- we had the meltdown where the industry basically basically gave, its, gave itself to a somebody else. To somebody else <laughs> who wasn't even their first business. Their business was selling hardware mm-hmm. and gave, um, not atypical of an industry, which essentially is still run by amateurs. Let's be honest, um, and I don't I mean that. I don't mean I that in a disparaging way. I think that's something that's changing. I think it I a think, lot though. I think, I think there's more emphasis on you kind of need to know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, but I think this. Yeah, but this is where I'm sort of leading with this. I think what we've now got is is that now, okay, the internet, the, the, the okay, internet age. Let's just call it the digital age, the new age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presents more opportunities than ever before for an artist to be creative, and potentially make it a career, mm-hmm. I, I believe. Simply by the basic fact that the walls that made it difficult no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if you do understand what it is you're trying to create and you do have an entrepreneurial mind in what you're doing, I'm not talking about you having to be that being your primary thing, but if you can just go, I really believe in what I'm doing, I will do what I need to do to get the right people to hear this. You can find that audience. You can bypass or go round or, or, or select like bits of Lego the way that you get there. So the, the conventions, which made you focus on the conventions before, must get record deal, must get liked by this area of the press, must get liked by, still apply. Mm-hmm. You can still use that route, but there are multiple other routes. So what's exciting me is that a lot more, 
what would have been seen as superfluous niche music in the past because you just couldn't generate enough of an audience um, mm -hmm. because you just couldn't reach them. So, you know, uh, you know so early industrial bands like Cabaret Voltaire, you know, were big in, massive in Manchester and surrounding areas, a bit in London, did seep into like a bit of Europe here and there. But if they came out now, it would be as big as LCD sound system, in my opinion, yeah. based on the fact that there is enough of an audience for this music out there, but you couldn't actually reach them. The channels are now the channels open. Were not, the channels are open. So if you have the right mindset, whether you're in the business or, the, or, or an artist, mm -hmm. you can actually sit down and go, well, anything is possible. So we can actually create our own path. Now, you can't just create your own path like outside the woods. You're going to have to use elements of what exists, mm. but you can kind of choose how you put that together a little bit more. Yeah. And that's scary for some people, and it's great for others. And if you actually look anything from pop to hip hop, look at the score with grime and stuff like this, right through to even what some of the rock bands are starting to do now, where they're starting to go, oh, I'm taking charge. I'm taking charge of this. I'm going mm. to, I'm going to, we can, we now have control of our audience. We speak to our audience. So that's where the value is, mm -hmm. right? So that gives you security. If you were willing to put the effort into getting to that audience, that gives you security that you never have had before. The minute you lost your record deal, you lost, you lost all touch really with your audience. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously you could advertise gigs and people come to you, yeah, yeah, but you're yeah. generally not gonna be able to reach your audience because the channels get closed for you. So mm -hmm. it's all the doors closed. Well, you don't have that anymore. So no. I think, so the main thing for me is if you, whether you're in the industry, no matter what element of the industry, outside of like just being counting, you need to be a creative. I don't think you can work. I don't think you can work in the new economy of the music industry without having a creative input into the general business. And also, the old creator, the, the artist, has to have more of a business mind. Again, not necessarily knowing how to run spreadsheets. Both ends have to just meet in the yeah, middle. Yeah, it's more. like the Venn diagram. It's, this bleeds together now, whereas they were very much apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, create, exploit, create, exploit. Now it's a mixture of the mm -hmm. two. It's very. It should be pretty much how like I always thought that when I started a label, which is just a, a, a kind of a meritocracy between people going, look, it's in all of our interest to do this right. You specialise in going, yeah. if we do this, this and this, we have a chance of earning some money. And I go, well, if I do this, this and this, I think we can get an audience. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's that kind of thinking. So I think it's a really exciting time. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it does mean it's very confusing because the paths don't seem to be there. There were advantages to the old way, which is it was kind of self-filtering. It kind of there was a natural selection about what bands would make it or what bands wouldn't. Now we all have a beauty of music is we all have our own opinions about mm -hmm. what is good and what isn't good. But because there was apparently a professional set of people who did things like A and R and stuff who would be able to select the right bands out of all those bands to put on their labels and put the money into, it was a bit like, you know, I game shows, not game shows, but the the talent shows now, isn't it? You're through, you're out. You're yeah. through. There was an element of that. Not that you consciously thought about that as a band, but that's kind of how it played. Um, which meant that, um, I was going to say, yeah, I guess it's, there's a kind of a quality control. Whereas now, because you and me can bark a tune into here and have it up on iTunes in 24 hours under yeah. the name of Danny and Stephen barking, um, there's no filter. Let's do that. Let's do it. <laughs> I reckon we can make it. I know who our audience is. We'll be um, in the viral charts within a minute. Exactly. Um, means that, the, that um, you've got to be a bit keener than mm -hmm. you've ever been. So you have to create your own <coughs> way. Which brings me around to that whole thing about things like attitude. That's what attitude I look for. Attitude. Because that's what elevates. You know, there's loads of people doing what Mac DeMarco do, but there's only one Mac DeMarco. You know, loads of people did what Billy Holiday did, but only one Billy Holiday. Yeah. And it's not just because, oh, it's just the voice. It's not just the voice. It's the way it's delivered. It's everything. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes yeah, yeah. makes these things great. It's why out of all the punk bands, Idols, Shane, right, are, are, are making their kicking own on, right kicking now, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's because they've got that sorted. And you're not done with the music industry just yet. I thought I was about four or five years ago, but I've actually become very intrigued with it again. I think you have to be a shapeshifter. I think you need to change. I've done, there's very few things I probably haven't done in some shape or form. And maybe that was making me go, well, I've kind of, I've rifled through the entire sack here. There isn't much left. But actually this kind of, well, new, kind of the, 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 the new way of doing things has made me go, ooh, 
maybe maybe there is a whole new thing to kind do. of mirrors what you were saying at the beginning you kind of you, know, you found yourself a jack of all trades yeah. master of none a, a chameleon with everybody but also a bit of a loner and it kind yeah. of maybe happened the same way in the music industry but you've kind of found has. maybe a new sense of of interest in maybe being a bit more focused yeah working with a very a core group of people yeah, rather so. than trying to dip into everything. I definitely everything. look at things differently, not in, a, in, not in a kind of like, it's developed, I'm actually looking, trying to look from different angles now. And I think what I've done is, is I've very consciously started to look from the artist's point of view more than the industry's point of view. I think I probably always have because yeah. I've started as an artist. But obviously when you're kind of working on the other side of the old metaphorical wall, fence, you're really spending most of your time with other people like you rather than the artists. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I spend a lot more time with artists than I do with industry, it makes it much easier for me to see it from that point of view. And I think it's the right view in the new economy because your job is to help someone find an audience and, and maintain that audience. Mm -hmm. And really, not the rest of it's superfluous, but everything else will come if you have an audience. You will not want for stakeholders, you will not want for uh, helpers, influencers, if there's an audience going, these guys, this girl, whatever it is, we listen to this mess. What a wonderful way to end. There you go. Cheers, man. No worries. Thank you. A massive thank you there to Steve for taking the time out to have a chat with me. As I said, really hoping to get him back on very, very soon, maybe even over this summer to have a chat with him in more detail about some of the stuff he's been up to more recently. If you would like to check out his band, Thousand Yard Stare, go to thousandyardstare.co.uk or find all their releases, past and present, on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., etc. You can also follow Thousand Yard Stare on Instagram at wearetys. If you're interested in getting in touch with his management company, management and promotions company, that's upshotmgmt.com. Um, as always, please do reach out to me via the email address for the podcast, behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at behindthebusinesspod or follow me on Twitter at dannychampion.com. Thank you very much for your continued support. Thank you very much for listening to this and sending me some really nice messages. And thank you very much for telling other people that they should be listening as well. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm definitely going to be doing 100 of these. So there's another 76 to come. Um, hopefully, there'll be plenty more. Until next time, see you later. <laughs>